Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, also known as IO360, on the topic of next-generation biomarker and companion diagnostics for predicting response. This session is led by Dr. Priti Heggie, Global Franchise Lead of Cancer Immunotherapy Biomarkers for Genentech. She is joined by Dr. Alessandra Cesano of Nanostring Technologies, Dr. Dan Chen of IGM Biosciences, Dr. Teresa Lavalli of Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, Dr. Ian McCaffrey of Janssen R&D, and Dr. David Messina of Cofactor Genomics. The next IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th, 2020, at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's see what we can do. Why don't we start out with uh, brief introductions? Teresa? Sure. Teresa Lavalli. I'm Vice President of Translational Medicine and Regulatory Affairs at the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. Alessandra Cesano. I'm uh, the Chief Medical Officer at Nanostring. Hi, I'm Ian McCaffrey. I head up the Oncology Translational Research Group at Janssen. Hi, I'm Dan Chen, uh, CMO at IGM Biosciences. Hi, everybody. Uh, Dave Messina, Chief Operating Officer at Cofactor Genomics. So we're going to keep this really informal. If folks have questions, do come up to the mic. Um, I have a couple of questions that I've prepared just to get us started, but I'm hoping that we can have more of a dialogue with the audience here. Um, so I thought before we get started, you know, whenever we go to talks, CIT talks, immunotherapy talks, folks usually start out with uh, a bashing session on diagnostics. Well, there is no biomarker for immunotherapy, so on and so forth. So I just wanted to get a pulse check from this, uh, from this panel on what you think uh, the state of the art is for diagnostics for checkpoint inhibitors. Maybe we start with Dan. Sure. Um, you know, I think it's an interesting question whether we have biomarkers for cancer immunotherapy. Cancer immunotherapy is obviously a very complex biologic process. There are so many inputs and outputs. Um, and so I don't think we can define our biomarkers the way an oncogene-driven therapeutic has a predictive biomarker. But absolutely, I believe we have biomarkers where we have powerful biomarkers that help us make clinical decisions. Can we do better? Sure over time, but I think that we have to recognize we've made a huge step in this field in terms of predictive biomarkers for cancer immunotherapy. And just imagine another similar biologically targeted complicated pathway in angiogenesis never got there. And I think that really reflects just how powerful the biomarkers we actually have for cancer immunotherapy are. Anyone want to add to it? Well, um, I agree. In particularly if we are comparing to angiogenesis, I definitely think we do have biomarker. Do we have good biomarker? Do we have the, as you point out, um, is um, clearly the negative predictive value of our biomarker is, uh, is not optimal. Mm -hmm. And so it's not optimal also for certain indication, the positive predictive value. So I definitely, that's one thing. The second thing is the biomarker that we have, they don't tell us anything about uh, uh, why the patient, for example, will not respond in particular. So they are really not revealing or helping us in that particular sense. So there is room for improvement. So I'll be the one to start the bashing then. Uh, I, you know, I think back to the, uh, even though we obviously have uh, come a long way, I think 
there was a paper published just last year um, by John Marshall and some colleagues at Keras uh, looking at about 11,000 patients, uh, and uh, he looked at uh, PD-L1 status, TMB, uh, MMR, and across all of those patients, 70% uh, of them showed no sign of any of those markers. So I think that's a good indication that we have a long way to go, and, and as Alessandro pointed out, it's, it's, we really have just begun the process of understanding uh, how to find biomarkers that really tell us um, why the patients are responding or not responding the way they are. Yeah, so I think um, we've done a lot, but I also think it depends upon what you're defining them for. So we have a joke at Parker where we have the biomarker of the month from Nature Immunology, and there's been a multitude of them published of late, and a lot of them published in general, but they're not used. So even, I mean, you did such a nice talk to really set this up. But how many people will tell you a hot tumor is CD8? What study has ever done a prospective study picking patients on the immune desert versus the immune infiltrate? So I think we have a lot of knowledge. It totally makes sense that a T cell is necessary. So let's do the study and figure out, is it CD8 plus TCF7, is it an exhausted T cell, is it T cell fitness, all these papers that have come out in the last six months. Yet we, we published them with a couple of patients, put them in nature immunology, get a great paper, and move on. Um, so I think the challenge is how do you bring it together? Because even if we, and what would we use them for? So as a community with all the studies that are ongoing, if we could just identify PD-1 monotherapy and have an algorithm is the other issue, is the immunogram is not a single driver. We're treating the immune system to attack cancer. So it's not even a tumor, and there's a lot that we can even learn from infectious disease that isn't overlaid. So I think it is incredibly complicated, and it's going to take a multi-parameter um, biomarker, multi-omics. We're starting to see studies like this done, like the one that was recently published in Science with TMP and gene expression profiling. But we need to add other things. What about all the MHC work that's been done? And so I think as a as a field, we really need to come together and really look at ways. So, I mean, Parker's trying to approach this. We're actually having a workshop that many of you were invited to, to see, can we bring people together and collaborate and just try to define who's PD-1 responsive and then do a study with a multitude of biomarkers? Because that could then inform our combination studies. And it's still pre-competitive space where you don't have to get, well, who owns it and this and that, because as a class, we could get the approval for that. So those, I think it's going to take novel approaches to really making them clinically useful to patients and not just nature immunology papers. Maybe just to add to the great points that have been made so far, I think that one of the things that uh, is a struggle for us is the, obviously the immune system is dynamic. Many of the uh, assessments that we do with the great technology we bring to bear on the question are done with archival samples in clinical trials. Um, I don't know uh, what the right solution is, but it feels to me like we need some uh, more in-depth clinical research where we're taking the right samples, 
in a prospective way specifically to interrogate the mechanism because otherwise um, you know, we can look comprehensively at an archival sample and it may have been collected and may be irrelevant to the immune status of the patients at the time of the trial. So you know, just to add to that, I think that, that we're still at the beginning um, and that will now, now that we've identified the potential for informative biomarkers, to Dan's point, I think now we should be doing clinical experiments to really build upon that and get some mechanistic associations with those markers. So I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate to both Ian and Teresa here. Um, I think that if you're looking for other biomarkers, which is important because clearly we don't have the right, the absolute right biomarkers for immunotherapy right now, that number might be 50, that might be 150, right? Because there are that many things that uh, ultimately play into whether any given patient has a response to cancer immunotherapy. And the problem with clinical research is clinical research is not built to test that number of hypotheses. It'll take a lot of patients. The um, initial uh, false positive rate will be really high. So you'll think that you have all these promising biomarkers in your initial um, examination, and then upon further exploration with large studies, you'll find that it's not really a predictive biomarker. And so you can quickly see that that's not a process that can really happen in the real world. And it's something I think Preeti, you and I have talked a lot about. We can't continue in this field without better animal models because we don't have a way to process this massive amount of information as a, you know, a hundred or a thousand hypotheses that we're going to test in the clinic. We need those nature immunology papers, but we need them to be done in models that have a much better, better translatability. So in the clinic, we can test, I don't know, one to five hypotheses and validate those. And I think that is one of the greatest struggles for this field. It was great that PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors work. It's great that CAR T cells work. But we're struggling with the scientific infrastructure to get us to that next level. And I don't think we can just do all of this in the clinic. We have a question out there. If you can give your name and your affiliation, please. Sure. I'm Michael Lastman. I'm from uh, Merck and Translational Biomarkers. Um, so, Alessandra, I appreciate your comment about us not really knowing exactly what hot tumors are, and that we'll have to do more uh, work in the future. But a lot of us are doing work right now combining anti-PD-1 or other IO checkpoints. Um, and we do want to, and the whole session was about changing tumors from cold to hot. So we're in the process of doing that research now. So is there any consensus or ideas about right now how we define a hot tumor cell increased hotness or inflammation that may predict increased response with anti-PD-1 therapies? Well, I actually think that uh, there was a paper that was published from your group, or at least uh, uh, some of the author were actually on, yeah. maybe you are yeah. one of the author. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough to be a co-author on that. Okay. But, so that... There, are, there are different ways, right? There's interfering gamma signature, there's CD8 by IHC, there's multifluorescent IHC measuring multiple what? parameters, there's CD8 plus KI67. So there's many different ways of measuring hotness, and then there's no definition of what is hot and what's cold really yeah, outside of the, the, na the nanostring kind of. Yeah, uh, but uh, so first of all, in that paper, you actually compare some of these, or at least, uh, at least in the TCGA, you know, you have a, a beautiful figure there in showing that they are highly correlated. 
although the correlation is never one, and even for PDL1 immunohistochemistry, at least just by looking at your data and the, I don't know, the gene expression profiling, the correlation has an arrow 0.44 or of, of the nature. So it's essentially saying they definitely all um, are in some way uh, predicting the pre-existing adaptive immunity that is one of the phenotypes essentially in which uh, uh, right now we know the most uh, because of uh, the checkpoint inhibitor is just one of the way in which a tumor can grow in an immunocompetent host and develop an adaptive immune response. And then the other phenotype is the one of actually not being seen at all. So essentially not having all the desert. But in that particularly, uh, you are actually showing that they are all essentially relating to each other. Uh, I'm not aware, really, of um, um, a preclinical, for instance, um, a pre-competitive environment in which these are, compa are compared in a predictive, you know, in a prospective, for instance, way of really seeing if uh, they have a different kind of value. But to me, what is important is thinking about uh, um, that is the beginning. It's telling you it's cold or it's hot. But the mechanism by which you can have an inflamed tumor that doesn't respond to single agent and all the different mechanisms by which that can happen and vice versa, which you can have a tumor that is excluded or it is a desert. What are the different mechanisms that can be addressed in a different way? You need to have all this biology captured in one assay. So that is not the assay for one tumor, one drug, but is an assay of characterization of the disease from an immunological point of view. And tumor point of view, because some of these phenotypes, immunological, is affected by the tumor biology too. Can and, I, um, just to be, I'm just going to just say this, it may be controversial, but, you know, at some point, pdl one IHC does a pretty decent job of identifying inflamed tumors, and pdl one negative, stone-cold negative tumors tend to have very little immune infiltrate. From a practical clinical trial development perspective, we know what monotherapy checkpoint inhibitors, um, it, what the response rates are for monotherapy checkpoint inhibitors at the various levels of PDL1. So if you're doing a combination study, practically PDL1 still makes sense as a biomarker to identify hot versus cold tumors, so you can interpret your combination data. I, I'm in agreement. However, if you want to choose or have a, a combination biology base, you know, right. instead of just empiric, and you want to have one single piece of tissue because that's all what you have, and you want to measure both the level of inflammation together with some kind of like your myeloid, for instance, right. because the, the value of a PDL1 or uh, an inflammation in the context of the myeloid component of um, mm -hmm. vascular component of some of the other can be totally different. And that's one of the reasons why the positive predictive value of any form of inflammation independently how you measure it is not as high. So just to, to respond to, to your comment, I think that the clinically actionable, clinically useful right. uh, aspect of pdl one is really what you were highlighting. And, and I think that speaks to our need to develop assays that can be used in the clinic that, that are a, a one-stop shop for that, right? So we have very sophisticated techniques, and we've heard about many of them here today, uh, which attempt to better characterize what we know is complex biology. We know there is a very complex biology going on in there, and trying to take single analyte approaches is going to be limited yeah. as a result. But if we can't translate multidimensional approaches into the clinic, 
then we're going to have a problem actually yep. using those on, on more than just a research basis. But there is no reason to believe we can't. Is we are just at the beginning, like the tumor limitation burden, for instance, is an example on which uh, there are so many different kind of uh, way of doing it, apparently. Hopefully, it's not going to end up in uh, like the PDL1 story that each company has its own, and so that's why there are this kind of uh, pre-competitive effort, mm -hmm. like the foundation from the NIH, to find, okay, does it matter? We don't even know. We have a lot of retrospective studies right. on that. But we also have very difficult to compare because of different technology platforms, different uh, depths of sequencing, different genes, different cutoffs. And uh, so what is really needed what, in that, and I'm delighted that there are institutions like uh, the NIH or uh, like non-for-profit for that have this pre-competitive environment in which prospectively we design something and all the different technology platforms actually compare at the same time. You at least have the data and you need to make this investment at a certain point right. if you want to find out if these technology platforms are actually translatable in the practice. Right, and, and you, you mentioned uh, Teresa's approach and also uh, Quantum Leap has uh, their one source initiative which is trying to regularize uh, clinical trials in the same way. So yeah. certainly there are uh, efforts underway to, to address some of those fundamental issues. We have one more question. Hi, I'm Christina Krugliak from Illumina. Um, actually, my question is very related to what you just said, which is that all of these studies are not comparable to each other. You have different panels, you have different content, you have different depths, everything's different. To push that even further though, what do you see as the comprehensive assay? Do you, do you want you no know, combined TCR sequencing with exome sequencing, with genome sequencing, with uh, whole transcriptome sequencing, with IH, like what, what are we actually trying to do in, an, in a cost-free ideal world? Well, I can provide you my view. Yeah. There's only one. Uh, as I say, to me, the, it depends on the indication where you clinically have to uh, apply. So, for instance, that's one of the reasons why a PDL one was a very good assay, particularly when you put a certain cutoff and you want to find a, a group of patients to compare chemotherapy, you use a different cutoff than if you are in the last line setting. But what we really need, what I would love to see, is actually an assay that allows me to, to identify the immune tone of, uh, of the patient of that particular patient in front. So understanding if uh, what are the mechanisms in that particular, first of all, is even the cycle relative, like is an immune uh, active tumor or not? And if it's not, or if it is, what are the, the what you call the bottleneck of steps for that particular? So if you have an assay that essentially provide you that information, you are already one step ahead in where we are today. That's my bias. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking as uh, listening to the discussion that um, um, we have to be mindful that we can't measure everything, right? So, and everything assay would be would be nice. It's just not going to be practical, not just from the cost perspective, but tissue. And so, we have to sort of pull apart the the biological mechanistic investigation from the testing hypotheses in the clinic, right? So, if we're going to test hypotheses in the clinic, we have to be very uh, sure about the hypothesis, but we also have to be uh, specific about the hypothesis too. Uh, to Dan's point, we can't measure 40, 50 things uh, in, in the clinic. And I think when one thinks about uh, understanding the biology of the biomarkers with specific 
focused clinical experiments, then I think you want to go broad uh, as, as possible. Um, but I think just making the point that that's not necessarily the way you'd want to test the hypothesis in the clinic, statistically, because you couldn't do it. Yeah, so to this question, you know, I'm a strong believer that at the end of the day, we need solutions that work in the real world. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about very complicated biology. In my own estimation, the only piece of all of this complexity around biomarkers that truly works in a real world where we have a diagnostic that captures multiple biologic important nodes is gene expression. And that's not to say that we should discard other biomarker approaches, but that Perhaps you're, what you're using is during the exploratory phase, multiple different biomarker approaches. But at some point, you have to reduce it to practice. And if, there are, if we have to measure five or ten different things, you know, how, how are we going to do that effectively if it's not gene expression? Right, right. And I think just to sort of add to that, I think that's right. I, I agree with you. But um, at some point, you have to know um, what cells you're measuring the genes that are expressed in. Because if you don't do that, without some kind of, for instance, single cell sequencing, you may miss that when you actually go to test the hypothesis in the clinic and be using the wrong technology, right? And I, and I hope that if we're gonna get there, that you know, single cell gene expression isn't the end platform, though it, yeah, it could be, but it's part of that exploratory platform, and at the end of the day, you're able to use bulk gene expression to develop a signature that's good enough for the real world. Yeah. But you're right, I, I mean, I don't think we know until we get there. Exactly. I think what I'm saying is that early phase exploratory stuff, we, in the biomarker field, in, 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 we seldom get the opportunity to do that adequately, I think, because things move so quickly, and in particular in the I.O. space, because of the enormous promise of the therapies, they go straight, they go from phase one to phase three, right? So you just don't get the opportunity, and I think we need to focus more on that, whether those are through collaborations, industry consortia, or, or company-sponsored trials, we'd have to look into that more. Just to that point, um, you know, with, with driver mutations, it's fairly easy to develop such panels, even if it's a gene expression. I think the challenge we have with immunotherapy is how I define a T-cell signature may be different from how Alessandra defines a T-cell signature. The cutoffs may be different. And I, I guess the question is, is there, what is, how do we as, as um, a community come to an agreement on how we define biology. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, just to be, like, for complete... Uh, I can't even get my own scientists to agree on something. So you can imagine the general community and the, the discord that would occur. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the reasons, probably, for instance, tumor mutation burden is another one. I just don't want to talk about the gene expression profiling. Then it looks like we are discussing on something that we both work on. But the, the TMB is an example. I mean, it's very difficult to actually uh, even understand what, what are you comparing because of uh, the different panel, everybody coming. Even microsatellite instability now. I mean, mm -hmm. if we were thinking that it was very easy because it had been defined for years where nobody really mm -hmm. edited as a CDX, but more a laboratory developed looking at four 
FOSI, you know, area of, uh, or the DMMR. Now they are all these NGS base and they become really very different. So to me, the only way is to actually have that pre-competitive again, right. in which there is an agreement that what is important for the field is to identify one way of measure certain things that are relevant and then actually use them and uh, so that the drugs act on the same population and we can actually compare effect for the patients in that way. Um, that's, and everybody puts their skin on the game in this pre-competitive, the diagnostic and then the drug and the, and the public. And, and I would argue that we've never ever agreed really on anything. I mean, even if we think about IHC, um, the way that we define the markers that constitute an immune cell, the level of staining that we need in order to say that this is a positive or negative. Um, so this is the complexity that we've always dealt with and uh, we are seeing that more now in a milieu where we have a lot more that we can measure, and so we want to see it all. To Ian's point, we want to be able to measure as many um, uh, biomarkers or potential biomarkers as we can throughout the process. But at the end of the day, I think, to bring it back to your point, we have to have at least a limited set that we can fo focus on in a clinical context. And so we may not always agree, but at least if we're clear about the assumptions that we're all making, we can use that as a basis for yeah. uh, some rational comparison. And I think, um, so one, I always say that my job is to displease the least number of people. <laughs> um, so I never try to make people happy because especially, you know, even when you can do a 40-plex panel, um, people still, oh, you missed my marker. <laughs> you know, so I think that right. what's the cutoff? And we are seeing, so the pdl one issue that happened with the testing. We're seeing friends of cancer and FDA and a consortium getting together and working together on TMB to harmonize the tests so that as everybody has a different readout, there's something that makes sense to the patient. And we're working on initiative for cellular therapies in terms of how to do faster transition to the clinic and what are the critical quality attributes as a community. Can we bring that together and get a white paper? So I think more and more we're working together, um, but I think that you have to have, you have to put a line in the sand if there's so much work on CD8. Is it the Imaginab imaging that would go with sequencing and IHC? It is going to have to be multifunctional, just based on the features of the immune system that we've seen that are useful. But I don't think it's beyond the scope of the ability to screen and to do a multi-factor test. I mean, we have next-gen sequencing panels. I mean, when I started with companion diagnostics, when you were trying to explain to people what an IDE was and CDRH, you know, back in the day where people didn't at all appreciate that development, it's a lot different today than it was 10 years ago. Um, so it's hard. But it's equally hard to see these 2,000 clinical trials with failed results. So I think that there is a motivation both from the FDA, the community, but working together. I mean, better animal models is what everybody wants. Um, but I think that's almost a harder question than doing some of the work in the relevant animal model, which is man with these approved agents with thousands of patients being treated and people like Memorial doing impact and 
really bringing together and, and sharing data and as a community to answer questions that still allows us to do our own discovery and advancement of our own pipelines. So admittedly, the topic of pre-competitive space, I also always bristle at a little bit. Um, we work in a scientific field. I don't know how it is we're expected to already know the answer before we've answered the question. And so I think it's, it's a... It's not that pre-competitive agreement isn't important, but we have to be really sensitive that there are more unknown unknowns than what we really know today. And if we start agreeing like everybody in the field is going to do it this way, that the, that the, the side effect of that is you squash innovation. You may not en end up with the real right answer. And so it's not that we shouldn't have pre-competitive discussions, but I think we need to be really thoughtful about how we do it. And I worry sometimes in this field that there's always this rush to let's, let's agree on this so that we can all be testing the same thing. But we have to recognize we just don't know the answers yet today. And we have to be open to alternative ways to think about things and do things. Otherwise, we won't really get to the best answer. That's a good point. Can I just make a comment on something that Teresa just said? Um, you know, Don made a good point about how many hypotheses we can test in the clinic. Um, and I'm just wondering to what extent people are using clinical genomic databases to, to get at this question. I mean, there's a lot of patients now uh, receiving PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies. Um, those data uh, are in electronic health record databases for sure, and now more and more are being captured in the genomic associated genomic data uh, for those patients. Companies like Flatiron Foundation, uh, Tempest, or another company doing something like this. There are there are others too, um, and we should be mindful of the opportunities there, right? Because we can now get thousands of patients with genomic associated genomic data from which we can, you know, we can we can draw conclusions that can be tested prospectively. Yes, I'm, I'm in agreement then with you. When, when I say pre-competitive, I, I don't mean that there is one single thing that is tested. What I'm saying is that the same, a clinical trial on which everybody agrees that a certain hypothesis is tested, the sample are actually testing on different platforms of, of so biomarkers so that you can actually compare with the same patient population with the same outcome, different treatment, because there will be different treatment, but also you have the same biological characterization on different platforms that probably one of the questions they could answer, are all these things equal or aren't? That, that's what I meant. Ian, you brought up a good point because um, the FDA is really interested in real-world data and getting you know, a regulatory path for uh, filings and labels based on real-world data. The Pantumor TMB uh, effort is using real-world data. So I think you, you, you bring up a really good point there. Um, I think we have question. Mark. Oh, yeah. Thanks, thanks very much. Um, so I think what I'm hearing is part of the frustration resides in the fact that it seems like there ought to be a universal suite of assays that are deployed regardless of the mechanism of action of the drug. So I suspect, Teresa, that when you have that disappointment with that investigator that wanted that specific marker, it's because that's pertinent to the, the actual mechanism of the drug tested. So that may just be an unachievable you know, goal, right? Because there's so much complexity in this biology, which makes me wonder whether there's a benefit in building out a super robust data set around one of these anchor molecules like PD-1 itself or PD-L1 inhibition, right? Now, maybe I'll throw that to you. And I think there are efforts like with the PACT and the FNIH and Parker's 
it has the same site. So we have, I mean, we call it affectionately the Parker Translational Suite that's multi-omic and fit for purpose. So we have directed assays as well as multi-omic assays, you know, like people prefer RNA-seq over some of the nanostring platforms because what will you miss using nanostring at those times? And so it's fit for purpose, whereas if we're going to do a signature-based uh, adaptive study where we might want to pivot, we would use nanostring because it can work clinically. But I think the whole genome sequencing and building out panels for both CYTOF and multidimensional imaging are a major effort that a lot of us are working on to at least have a standardized panels available to the field yeah. that we could compare across trials. Yeah. Um, we have four minutes left. I want to pivot to a different question, and this is, you know, we are using a lot of big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence and whatnot to do reverse translation work and utilize clinical trial data to inform combination strategies. Um, a, how well do you guys think that's working? And B, what is the level of evidence that's really needed from that genomic workup association with outcomes to give you confidence that you're now going to run a combination study in humans? Yeah, I think it's the, the number of individuals that can take and, and put the resources and the efforts into getting the data set so they are comparable. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I work with the whiz kids, as I call them, um, that aren't intimidated by many of these large data sets and are trying to pull in data from industry, academics, and our trials and looking across them. It's a, it's a start, um, and I think you get the N without having to do all the studies, and uh, there are a number of initiatives looking at it. So I think... It is here to stay, and we'll learn more. Whether or not it will give us the answer, um, I always like to say that there's not a data set that's going to inform. It's a collective data set. So getting to those combinations, you still need the biology and a hypothesis. You could be wrong, um, because we all have our favorite, you know, whether it's an MDSC or an M2 macrophage or... You know, so as you talk about myeloid cells, everybody will tell you their favorite one and whether CCR2 versus CCR25 affects Tregs. And, you know, so you get into these conversations for ad nauseum, but you have to at least have a hypothesis that you can then use data to say, did you address it or not, and learn from it. And I think another thing that someone said was earlier in one of the talks was learning from our clinical studies like, I would love for people in these combination studies as they read out to say, did you test your hypothesis and it failed? <laughs> so that we don't just put another CSF1R in, or lag three. And, you know, so it's the, the combinations repeating themselves. Is... David? So I think there's always going to be a need to focus the assay um, as best we can, but really we're in a situation now where we can be more hypothesis neutral and, and let the data tell us uh, the answer. And I, I think that bringing in large data can be helpful, but we also have to be thoughtful about are we really adding in data that really informs the question that we're trying to answer. You know, there is a saying, and I come from a computational background of garbage in, garbage out, and if we just try to pack everything into the model, we're not necessarily going to get a better answer. And so 
Um, and I think it's cool to see that there's, there's uh, a hot topic now here, and we've seen this at the, this conference around multidimensional models and, and folks trying to be more sophisticated in their approaches of applying data in specific ways. And so I know uh, Laura Esserman is planning to talk about that in her talk tomorrow. I'll, I'll give a plug for Cofactor CEO talking about that in his tomorrow. And so we'll we will continue to see, I think, better ways of harnessing large data in a focused way that can. Um, be more, perhaps, um, more effective than just pushing in everything we can have. Um, I, I think it's very uh, hypothesis generating, the many novel approaches we have to big data and trying to identify the next series of targets. I very much agree that these things have to be um, you have to incorporate a lot of different input to try to figure out what the right things to go after. And I think biologically in general, um, they become pretty obvious once you start to take orthogonal approaches. So even though it took probably a decade to really understand the impact of PDL1, PD1, it was coming up, and it was coming up through a multiple there were many different approaches that showed it. And, then, and I would argue that for something like immune exclusion, the data is pretty good right now that TGF-beta is one of the dominant drivers of that biology. And so we're probably going to get you know, a driver and then a lot of other smaller things that play into that biology. Now, whether we know how to target TGF-beta appropriately as a therapeutic is a different story. But in terms of identifying a target, I think that's pretty clear. And if anyone has an answer to what the driver is for immune deserts, I, I hope you will run up to the stage right now and tell us what it is, because I think that's probably one of the next big um, treasure hunts that we should be on as a scientific community. There's something clearly there, whether it's one factor or two or three, I don't know, but it, it feels like one of the big missing links for our field. And so I think that as long as we apply orthogonal approaches, which include some of the novel big data or alternative data sources, we'll probably get a pretty clear answer. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2020 IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.